A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So, take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hello and welcome to another Top 10 Debate. I'm Adam Wilborn from What Culture, joined by one of the Dadly Boys, Michael Sidgwick from What Culture, to talk about the loudest wrestling pops you didn't know about. But before we get into it, if you're a fan of this sort of thing, make sure you subscribe to What Culture Wrestling on either iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts from for daily wrestling podcasts. Where we review Raw, SmackDown, NXT, AW Dynamite, pay-per-views. We have interviews, roundtable discussions, and a roundup of the week, complete with a bloody good quiz, of course, on wrestle chat as i said though joined by michael sidrich to talk about his article 10 loudest wrestling pops you didn't know about which you can read now and see some of the clips we're going to be talking about at whatculture.com right now but sidge i think i know the answer to this one i'm asking anyway what was the catalyst behind this list the catalyst behind this list was because the, the list was written on the week of double or nothing was jesus christ we're going to get pops back and jesus christ we got pops back at oh double or nothing oh my god I've had, much like I guess everybody else, like a strange relationship with wrestling the second that COVID-19 hit in that. We've all kind of played along, at least we have, in the um, the industry, the media wrestling industry, because you kind of have to, you have to absolutely boot up and get on with it and reconcile the fact that it can still be good. It's nowhere near the same. It can still be good, but it's all a bit bittersweet and you know that even on like a seven if the show has the temerity and this is AEW WWE is always freaking falls at best but if like AEW has the temerity to be a seven you're like uh obviously it's a good show but it's just oh, it's just not the bloody same it's not the bloody same luckily AEW despite a recent drop off has been booked so well that so many of them been nines that it's been very easy to play along but play along is the word we have been filling in the gaps We've been guessing through the quarter hours who is over. And I don't know about you, Wilborn, but my watching, because I had to watch all of this stuff for work, my re-watching of old pro wrestling has just completely nosedived over the past year because mm. the second you see a hot crowd, it's just heartbreaking. Like, it's just heartbreaking. Um, but on the advent of Double or Nothing, full capacity crowd, I decided, you know what, I'm going to relive some of my favourite wrestling moments. And I'm also going to write an article about ones that maybe a lot of wrestling fans don't know about. Because if nothing else, like this platform allows me, one, to watch wrestling and get paid for it, which even on like dismal weeks like this and the last one, I've got a Double or Nothing hangover. Yes, Big time double or nothing goddamn hangover. But this affords me the opportunity to write about wrestling and get paid for it, which is just amazing. 
Two, it allows me to take the piss out of Triple H. And three, it allows me... One of my favourite bits about this job is that sometimes people on Twitter say, oh, you know, I wouldn't have watched AEW on New Japan or this match if Sidgwick hadn't have told me about it. Mm. And I think that's so phenomenal. Like, I'm not saying I'm on their level, but Finn Martin of Power Slam fame and Dave Meltzer, like, genuinely enriched my fandom. Mm. I'm so appreciative of their recommendations and they've genuinely made being a wrestling fan a better experience. So if I, in some small way, can carry on that torch, outstanding. And this article was a rare positive Sidgwick piece in which I tried to encourage people to do the same thing. But you're so right as well about, about Double or Nothing. And, you know, we got it as well at WrestleMania, but we talked about that at the time. I want to talk a little bit about Double or Nothing now, because I said I was watching Double or Nothing on, it was Bank Holiday Monday here in the UK, uh, in a sort of... <laughs> Don't take this the wrong way. Drugged up haze because I just got the Moderna vaccine. Uh, and honestly, I thought I just, I, you know, not that I thought it was going to be a nice relaxing watch because there was a lot on the line and stuff. But I was like, that's perfect. Sort of like let it flow through my body and just lie down on a Monday afternoon. Um, uh, the parents who'd been staying with us for the past week had gone. It was just like, right, it's just let's just chill out ahead of next week's work. We're going to talk about this, obviously. Let's just watch it. It was just a moment like, I mean, obviously the show started and we we talked about it on the review at the time, like the, the Hangman Page uh, cage stuff uh, and obviously the sting pop. But that moment with Moxley and Kingston was like, oh, it just it felt like, you know, just it was all coming back and, and, and we've seen glimpses of it. And like you say, I would watch like Kofi Kingston winning the WWE Championship at WrestleMania and kind of have to turn it off because it got me a little bit emotional and like you say, just longing for something like that. So you're right, I've I've missed out uh, or missed a lot of these pops uh, and especially these that, that we're going to talk about now that a lot of people don't know about. And uh, well, speaking of wrestling returns in terms of crowds returning, um, incredible. Tell us about the story about Kenta Kabashi because... I thought Japanese crowds were quiet, Michael Sidgwick. Well, there's two examples which um, completely and utterly disprove that. Um, Kenta Kabashi is possibly the greatest babyface professional wrestler of all time. Like, wrestling's great. Doesn't feel like it this week. But wrestling is great. And there are several candidates for that. People might point to Ricky Steamboat. Um, I think I prefer Hiroshi Tanahashi's matches. it's just, there's nothing in it. Like, Kenneth Kabashi was awesome. But when I mean that Kenneth Kabashi was possibly the greatest babyface performer ever, I'm talking about, like, the fire. I'm talking about his ability to cast the illusion of a struggle and his just undying, indefatigable desire to just battle through and win it and survive it his facial expressions, his ability to just completely pull the audience emotionally into his matches. Like, these people go absolutely bananas. So what happened with Kenny Kabashi is that he wasn't, he was refused from the Old Japan Dojo um, because he didn't have a legitimate um, athletic background in his education years. He worked tirelessly in a gym in close proximity to someone who was connected with the idea of being like, look, I'll work my arse off. And this guy was like, I've never seen anyone train this hard. And if you look at the general makeup of a Japanese professional wrestler, that says a lot. Mm. He was, um, he endeared himself to Baba. He took a liking to him, giant Baba, booker and promoter of all Japan. 
And as a test, he took them to like the most unglamorous circuit, thinking, right, he's not going to like this. No one likes doing this. And Kenta Kabashi just done the entire circuit, this rural show that not many people went to and it wasn't very hot. And just did it with a beaming smile on his face. and was so grateful for the opportunity. And the people on those shows gravitated towards him because his just emotion was just incredible. So what happened was, was because Giant, ba- uh, Giant Baba was an amazing booker. I'm taking the long route here, but it all informs what came next. He booked him to lose his, I think, the number 63 consecutive singles matches. And this is part of the course in Japan, but it took a little bit uh, in Japanese wrestling in general and all Japan. He lost his first 63 matches, but they measured it perfectly so that in every match, he would show a little bit more fire. He'd show a little bit more improvement, a little bit more accomplishment. And that slow burn was possibly the most successful slow burn build ever because these people were just allowed to organically connect with Kenta Kabashi. What happened was he became a total legend, an absolutely incredible worker who just absorbed the most incredible and ill-advised punishment throughout the um, glory days of all Japan pro wrestling. But he can never, he won the triple crown, but never dethroned Mitsuru Masawa, who was the absolute ace. I think that he had five legendary triple crown title matches and Kabashi never beat Masawa for that title, even though he won the title. And then in 2003, they went with him and he was just, he'd gone from sentimental favorite and also great wrestler and legendary babyface to the undisputed king of the entire industry. And he held that GHC because it was in Noah and the breakaway company, so it was no longer the Triple Crown. But he held that GHC for two years, just matches of incredible range, incredible attendance, um, incredible quality. The, the guy just became a god. And what happened subsequent to that reign was that his body, having endured all of this punishment, just completely gave up on him. Um, several injuries. It felt like he got injured like the, the second he came back, and also he battled cancer. Wow! Um, it just felt to these people like such an awful moment that this guy who just battled through everything and was a legitimate living hero to them succumbed to something horrible that will just get everyone. Um, and they just didn't think he could come back because it was such a horrible thing that I think everyone's got a horrible cancer story in their lives. Mm. But what happened is that Kobashi came back and he came back to the Budokan Hall, the legendary um, Japanese venue that has played host to all Japan's Glorias, Noah's Glorias. Um, New Japan has done some G1 climaxes um, recently there. It's a legendary venue synonymous with um, Kobashi Amasawa. And he returned and oh my God, the pop. Like you've heard people chant along with things. You've heard people um, chant, this is awesome in unison. I'm telling you, if you watch this pop and it's linked, hyperlinked in the article, which you can read on whatculture.com slash WWE, it's like they are one consciousness. Hmm. You can't hear a single voice out of sync. They are all completely unified in their adoration of and relief on behalf of Kenta Kabashi. All-time great wrestling moment, all-time great pro wrestler, like genuinely life-affirming stuff. Yeah, it's wonderful to watch that. Um, and sticking with Japanese crowds meaning, meaning to be quiet, let's talk about the babyface performance of a lifetime, as you put it, because, well, this, yet again, dispels that myth, as you, as you allude to in the article. 
Indeed. Um, Kenta Kabashi teamed with uh, Tsuyoshi Kikuchi against um, Furnace and Crawford, who, that this is what, the way I've always put this in um, my reviews of this match, and I'm sorry, it's such a great take that I'm just going to repeat it whenever I, I, I review it and mention it. It is the perfect Japanese professional wrestling match. Um, Japanese wrestling, at its core, um, was built on the idea of Ricky Dozan healing the, the collective psyche of the Japanese public after World War II. And he used to thwart off the invading foreign menaces and beat them. And it was restorative to these people. So the idea was that for years and years and years, until Terry Funk kind of changed everything, the, the foreign American wrestler was automatically like horrendous, horrible person. <laughs> so you got that kind of psychology, but at the same time, you also get what Japanese wrestling latterly became famous for in that it's sheer technical accomplishment, storytelling, drama, and psychology and crowd heat. And these two philosophies are fused together in one absolutely incredible match where Kikuchi, the smaller guy in his team, just will not be denied. He will not be defeated, even though the, it's like the perfect performance of body's weaker, but spirit is more than willing. There are pops in this match where for each punch, he gets an Austin Road Warrior pop. <laughs> he tries to steam into a barrage of punches that are so fiery and so in denial about how big his opponents are that there are people like standing up and fist pumping as if they're watching an actual combat sport or as if their home team is like just marauding into the box mm. of the local derby opposition and are about to score a screamer. They are going ballistic. And if anyone tells you, dear listener, that Japanese crowds are too quiet I've said this before, they are idiots who've watched five minutes of a slow burn and went, sucks. <laughs> Turned it on the message board and somehow this myth has just prevailed somehow. Um, again, this is an absolutely must-watch match. One of the hottest Southern-style tag matches ever. Like, people hate when I invoke the comparisons. And like, I'm not saying that Money in the Bank 2011 was in any way not wrestling perfection. This is louder. Like, I'm saying this not to say oh, it wasn't quite as loud, was it? Like, I'm not being a dick. I'm saying if you think that's like life affirming, molten pro wrestling atmosphere, like, this is louder. Go and watch it. You, do, you, you need to watch it as a professional wrestling fan. Hey, everyone. I've been on the go recently Phoenix, Kansas City, Chicago. If you're like me and have a home but aren't always at home, you have an Airbnb. Hosting your home or a spare room is a very practical side hustle. If you live in a big game town, you can Airbnb your place for fans to stay in. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at Airbnb.com slash host. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to health care, it pays to be extra. 
And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Before we go any further, though, this podcast is brought to you by Rocket Money. Do you ever feel like money is just flying out of your account and you've got no idea where it's going? Well, it's all those subscriptions. I mean, think about it. Between streaming services, fitness apps, delivery services, it is endless. I'm guilty of this, so I used Rocket Money to help me find out what subscriptions I'm actually spending money on, and it was more shocking than a wrestling betrayal. You see, Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has helped save its members an average of $720 a year with over $500 million in cancelled subscriptions. So stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash wrestling. That's rocketmoney.com slash wrestling. Rocketmoney.com slash wrestling. Returning to uh, more from this list, 10 loudest wrestling pops you didn't know about available right now at whatculture.com. We saw a, a huge, huge pop which transformed once they realized who was under the mask uh, just the other day uh, with one, well, I can say Zack Ryder there. That's inappropriate. But yeah, the Nick Gage confrontation uh, with Mike Cardona, which was just, just great. Um, and it gave me memories of the unmasking or the revelation of uh, one Dean Malenko who's performing, of course, uh, at Slambury against Chris Jericho. For people unaware, because this this is one of the ones that I've genuinely enjoyed in the past, just talk about the history that went into this and, and then how that how that crowd reacted to the one of the most overlooked uh, areas of WCW, which obviously was part of their downfall probably. Yeah, absolutely. I'm not suggesting for an instant, this is absolute naive message board optimism to suggest otherwise. I'm not suggesting that Dean Malenko was ever going to be a star on the level of Hulk Hogan. But he worked them, that crowd, like Hulk Hogan could have. Um, The Cruiserweights were overlooked as, if you go back and watch those um, peak air nitros, what will happen is that you will watch some kind of scintillating for the time, state-of-the-art action with Cruiserweight. The fans get into it because these matches are already built. Um, it wasn't really an episodic quality to a lot of Nitro. It was just, oh, here's a great match. Have it because it'll make your eyes bleed because you've seen nothing like this on American TV before. So because they're cold to the characters sometimes and there's no like anticipation or grudge, like they win the mover. And there was always the sense that, you know, if you just prioritised storylines and TV time, like, you'll get them from the start, that pop will just escalate even more than, oh, Christ, this is really good. You'll get them from the start, and you can probably get guys more over. That was never better illustrated with the Chris Jericho versus Dean Malenko feud. Mm. Everyone has seen the, the, the promo with the first list. It's an absolutely ridiculous thing where Chris Jericho, before the winter M commercial, was on like hold eight or nine. And when he came back, he was on like 700. Like a, a great, absurd gag. Um, but that list 
was made to bury Di Malenko because he was the guy of 1,004 holes. Mm-hmm. Um, and Di Malenko was the guy for mere 1,000. So they had a feud. It was really good. And in the end, Di Malenko kept losing and, and said, like, I can't be happy with this. I have to go and reassess. In the meantime, Chris Jericho mounted a terror campaign against his family. The idea being that one day Di Malenko is going to come back and the pop is going to build because of the anticipation that's going to have built and built and the desire to get the catharsis because Chris Jericho has been such a monumental arsehole in the interim. <laughs> when Di Malenko eventually returns um, as Cyclope at Slambury 1998, nobody knows who it is because Di Malenko is a great worker on this evidence as well as being a great wrestler because he, and it's easy, it was really inspired, like, how did WWF win? Now, three great years ruined wrestling. <laughs> because this was such inspired storytelling. Because <clears throat> it was quite easy to hide Malenko under the Cyclope mask because he was in a battle royal. I think if it was like a singles match, he'd probably caught on to the fact that was Malenko, but he lurked on the margins. He was obviously involved in the finish. But then, in the end, he unmasks. And it's just this absolute mega pop when you realise, oh, Christ, it was Dean Malenko the entire time. So he got worked perfectly. The anticipation had built immaculately through the wider storyline. And then <clears throat> in the end, Di Malenko, the punches he throws at Jericho, yeah. it's like a hailstorm, a total hailstorm of fists, and the crowd just pop, pop, pop with every single flurry. And the idea is that if they applied just like an nth amount of the inspiration that went into that storyline across the division, who knows? Who knows? It was very much still a big guy, big star business. Like, like Steve Austin wasn't a small guy. It was still like the big body guys were in, but you know, the cruiserweights clearly had the ability to not just do really entertaining, intricate mat-based struggles or indeed aerial spot fests. And also they were followed by people like Scott Hall, as you say here in the article, saying, no, I'm going to go out there and get a bigger pop with a headlock. Yeah. Because you were allowed to do 20-minute promos in the ring and like get pelted with garbage. Hey, maybe Dean Malenko could have done that. Who the hell would he know? Hmm. Uh, let's talk about a name I'm probably going to butcher now before we conclude with a, a point that nearly deafened me. Uh, Shinya Hashimoto. For those unaware, uh, I, I love the education aspect of all this because it's just given me so much homework to go and do after, the, after this list. Shinya Hashimoto was one of the New Japan Three Musketeers. Um... Shinya Hashimoto, uh, Masahiro Chono, and the great Muta, Kaji Muto, they together propelled New Japan Pro Wrestling into the 90s peak, which is the absolute hottest period in the, the history of the entire company. Um, wrestling being like it is now generally means I don't think we'll ever recover that. But Jesus Christ, like they're, they're doing multiple dome shows per year and selling out. Shinya Hashimoto like, was kind of a folk hero. He embodied the core philosophy of why people gravitated towards New Japan Pro Wrestling in the first place. It's an incredibly hard bloke, very charismatic. Um, but he wasn't this perfect model of a like physical specimen. He's a bit fat, like a bit fat, if I'm being perfectly honest. But people just loved him. Like... I guess the closest analogy I can make is Dusty Rhodes. Just had that same kind of earthy, legitimate, like, you couldn't relate to him almost, but he was, it was so much better to cheer for him than some, like, muscle head or some, like, ultra-lean, shredded martial artist. 
Um, Help site was an amazing worker. <clears throat> what happened to generate this pop that I'm about to talk about is that um, the, the pural scene of the 1990s, the range of it was absolutely incredible. So you had the legitimate strong style of New Japan, which was, of course, elevated by the, just the insane innovation of the juniors underneath. You had the storytelling intricacy of the King's Road and the, just the brutal physicality of it. Um, and FMW and the various offshoots that ripped it off because it was such a stadium-sized concern, like high on the death matches and the explosions. The Joshi scene, like... Uh, Women's wrestling in the US, as great as it's gotten over the past five years, still can't hold a candle to it. Um, and you also had shoot style, work shoot style wrestling, UWFI, um, Union of Wrestling Forces International, that played on the idea that everything else is fake, but this is real. Hmm. And it was very much worked, mat based, technical pro wrestling. Um, that was very much informed by mixed martial arts. The idea being that if you can work it just enough, you can emulate the blood sport excitement. That's kind of inimitable when you, I'm not even a big UFC guy, but when you're watching someone getting punched flush in the face and the referee scrambling to get in, it's like that pumps the blood more than, you know, pro wrestling to yeah. some people. Like that. Um, so that was massive, um, but it ran into trouble. And the idea was that they, New Japan, invited them to do an interpromotional feud. And the idea that New Japan was built on the, the philosophy of legitimacy and the idea that there was, no, hang on, we're, we're more legitimate than you are. Like that made for such amazing heat. And it was one-sided, but at the same time, when you saw how much, like tens of thousands upon tens of thousands of people at the Tokyo Dome in 1996 just wanted to see Hashimoto beat this interloper, Nobuhiko Takara. Like, they could have probably done a few more dome shows, but that crowd was just desperate to have the honour of New Japan restored. And it's, it's a local derby atmosphere. Mm, yeah. I don't think, top of my head, I can recall a single American crowd that was ever as hot as that. The teasers for the Brain Buster, the sheer drop Brain Buster, that was Hashimoto's finish. Like, these people are desperate for it. They are roaring for it. When Takada is like blitzing him with punches in the face and Hashimoto has the smarts to just duck and sweep his leg, they, they, they go ballistic. <laughs> and it's from Battle Formation 1996. It's an incredible match, but an even better spectacle. And this is one of the reasons why I hate WWE. When you homogenize things, not only is it boring, but you just ruin a source of conflict. You've completely ruined a source of conflict. We saw it with Cardona. Um, sort of Jerry Lawler and ECW um, back in the day, the idea of someone who doesn't belong in your promotion yeah. going to that promotion, taking a dump on that promotion, claiming superiority over that promotion, that scene, that landscape, whatever you want to call it, and then losing and giving the fans the total cathartic satisfaction of, no, what you like is the way to do things and you are the winners. Why would you have crap overproduced pro wrestling when you can have that kind of stuff instead? We haven't begun to uh, realize the potential of the forbidden door. It's going to be difficult now because AEW's fan base is so respectful of different styles and 
like the range of pro wrestling mm. that's going to be hard to emulate that interloper feel. Um, but if they can bottle whatever they did at Battle Formation, then God damn it, do it. Now, finally, we've, we've talked about a lot of uh, great moments in, in great matches. Uh, but the final one I want to talk about is very simply a man walking out who shouldn't be walking out, to be honest. It is a classic moment. And it, it sounds so simple. And yet when you watch the footage, it nearly broke my speakers. It's, it's like the Beatles or something. It's bonkers, Magnum TA walking out. Uh, all those years ago at the Crockett Cup. Yeah, Magnum TA was like the great lost wrestler in that he was super over. This is a guy who, again, if you haven't watched the Starcade 85 match, the, the I quit with Tully Blanchard. Like, Magnum TA is such a rough bastard, such a barrel-chested, good-looking guy with just amazing babyface qualities. And he's so good at selling in that match. Like there's so much anguish in it. He's so great at selling that there's a point when Tully Blanchard has got a wooden chair leg. You've seen it on Dynamite, the pay tribute to it in the Inner Circle, Pinnacle Brawl. He's got a broken off bit of wooden chair leg, fashioned into a spike. He's going to like spoon out his <laughs> eyeball and people buy that an act of disfiguration could happen on a wrestling show because Magnum TA is so great at selling the fact that, Jesus Christ, I'm knackered here. Tremendous baby face, great worker, total superstar charisma, and he totaled his car, and the right side of his body was paralyzed, and his career was over, and not merely that, there was talk that he couldn't walk again. And in the Norfolk scope, in a legendary scene, aided by crutches, he walked out. And these people loved Magnum TA. And it was a different kind of love. It's like, we love John Moxley, right? We love our favorite wrestlers now. The complexion of the human being was different in the 1980s. Far more earnest, um, far louder, one could probably say. Um, and these people loved this man. These people did not think this man would even walk again. And he never did wrestle again. And what you hear from that reaction are like squeals, mm. like just squeals of total and utter relief and happiness. Um, it's one of those things where it's one of the nicest moments that you wish hadn't happened. Because yeah. for that moment it happened, like a great, great potential career had to like just be completely brought to a halt. So it's a very, very bittersweet moment, but no less powerful. Mm. And you can uh, watch that. Uh, on the link on this article at whatgorge.com. I'd suggest uh, go and read the article and either the links are there or go and search them out afterwards because, yeah, as, as, as you alluded to at the beginning, with the return of wrestling pops, I mean, it's going to be a long while before anything matches some of these, but nevertheless, it is something you and I, and I'm sure a lot of our audience have needed over the last months, if not year or so, um, but yeah, just some wonderful heartwarming moments, as you alluded to there, Sige. Uh, let us know your thoughts on everything we've discussed on Twitter at WhatCultureWWE. Well, actually, you can follow both of us. You can follow Michael Sidgwick at... Um, Sidgwick. You can follow me at Adam Wilborn. Follow us all at WhatCultureWWE. And make sure you subscribe to what Culture Wrestling wherever you get your podcasts from for daily wrestling podcasts, of course. And as I said, uh, check out the rest of this list because there's some other great ones we haven't had time to talk about. Uh, 
just search whatculture.com for the 10 loudest wrestling pops you didn't know about. My thanks to Michael Sidgwick, the author of this brilliant list. Thank you for joining us, and we will see you soon. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu.